0: The Siege of New Hampshire series, by Mick Rowland. Book One, Plan B Revised. Chapter One, Trying to Get Out of Town. If movies and books were reliable guides, the collapse of modern civilization was supposed to come suddenly. A comet impact, a nuclear attack, or a giant lizard rising from the sea— would be something that sent people running into the streets screaming. Square-jawed heroes with cool tactical gear would swashbuckle their way through all adversity, hot brass flying, against all odds. Starting out quietly, as an inconvenience, was not the usual movie plot. Giant lizards sell better. They're not only more exciting, but they have the added benefit of making it obvious which way to run. Who runs screaming from an inconvenience? Most people just grumble and wait, assuming that things will return to normal. But what if normal does not return? Martin pushed through the revolving door into the brightly lit lobby. Between the doors and the teller windows stood a woman holding brochures. Seeing Martin enter, her professional smile warmed slightly. Good morning, she said in an official sing-song tone. Welcome to Bank of Boston. Hey, hi, Susan, Martin smiled back. Not at your usual window this morning? Oh, no, it's my turn to work the lobby, she held up her handful of brochures. I see the curls are back, he said. What? Yeah, oh. Susan looked down and reflexively pulled at her curly hair. Yeah, I don't like to straighten it too many times. Oh, that's okay, he said. The curls look good. Martin could see over his shoulder one of the bank managers frowning at them from within his glass cubicle. I guess if you're working the lobby, you won't be taking my deposit this time. I guess not. I have another hour on deck to go. Over Susan's shoulder, Martin saw the frowning manager stand up quickly and stride towards them. Martin plucked a brochure from the cluster in Susan's hand. Is there some question here? the manager said. Susan, startled by the sudden voice behind her, stepped aside. The manager looked back and forth from Martin to Susan, A schoolmaster on a mission to ferret out bad behavior. His smile carried a hint of menace. Well, actually, yes, Martin answered calmly. He glanced down at the open brochure. A headline caught his eye. Something about linking accounts. Your employee here was just explaining to me about linking accounts. My firm has a corporate account with your bank. Martin held up his deposit bag. I thought I might, um, his eye quickly scanned the brochure again qualify for one of your premium personal checking accounts. Uh, is that right?' The manager's face quickly switched from angry schoolmaster to smooth Major d. "'Oh, new accounts. Why, yes, sir, I'd be happy to assist you with that.' He held out his hand for Martin to shake. "'I'm Mr. Skinner, branch manager. Why don't we step into my office?' Without looking away from Martin, the manager said over his shoulder, I'll take it from here, Miss Price. You may resume your duties. As the two men walked toward the glass cubicle, Martin glanced over Mr. Skinner's shoulder. Susan mouthed the words, Thank you, and gave a sympathetic little smile. Halfway to the manager's cubicle, the lights flickered a moment, then went off completely. A mixture of worried gasps and annoyed groans rose from the other cubicles. A pair of emergency lights popped on in the lobby corners, even though the room was well lit by the morning light through the tall windows. Mr. Skinner stopped and looked up at the dark ceiling fixtures for a few seconds. He cocked his head expectantly. Where's that generator? he muttered to himself. Um, please excuse me, but I have some issues to attend to. Martin gestured his approval. Mr. Skinner walked briskly toward the back room door he impatiently poked at a keypad a few times with no results, then fumbled with a ring of keys. Seeing the other tellers apologizing to their customers and the worried look on Mr. Skinner, scurrying from teller to teller, Martin could tell he would not be making his deposit for a while. He ambled back toward the front door with half a plan to return on his lunch hour. Susan glanced around, holding her brochures like a bouquet, Looking unsure as if she should stay at her lobby greeter post or not. Looks like I won't be talking with your Mr. Skinner or making any deposits for a while. Guess I'll come back later when the power's on. Sure, I hope it's not out for too long. They parted with smiles and shrugs. Outside of the bank, State Street looked as it always did. Pedestrians walked toward their offices with briefcases, coffee cups, or donut bags. The cars, delivery vans, and cabs still flowed along, albeit slowly. The traffic lights at State Street and Congress were dark, but the drivers were cooperating with each other, even negotiating left turns through the cross flow. Boston drivers have a reputation for being rude, but that is usually towards outsiders who do not follow the unwritten rules. These drivers all seemed to know the rules and were making the best of it. Farther up State Street, beyond the traffic lights, stood mesh construction fences. Martin wondered if the work crews had severed a power cable. Workers in hard hats were slowly climbing up from their pit. They looked more annoyed than alarmed. If they had cut a power cable, they clearly did not realize it. As Martin walked back to his office, everything looked like a normal autumn morning in the city. Nothing stood out as unusual in the lobby of Martin's building, either. The large windows always kept the small lobby bright. The elevator button didn't light up when he pushed it, the floor indicator lights were dark, too. Martin groaned. Oh, is this dumb thing broken again? They just fixed it. He noticed the two ceiling lights were out. Oh, our building lost power, too. The old narrow elevator was out of service almost more than it was in service, so the trudge up the five flights of stairs was nothing new. The darkness in the stairwell, however, that was new. A soft glow from the emergency lights on the third floor landing cast long angular shadows. None of the other emergency lights had come on. The fifth-floor offices of Ed Logix were twilight dim, even though it was 9.30 in the morning. Light from the small windows did not carry very far inside the old brick offices. Hey, Brian. Martin stood in front of his boss's desk. No deposit for now. The bank lost power. I see ours is out, too. Brian had not looked up or replied, but stared at his phone. Martin dropped the bank bag onto his desk Hello? Brian? Oh, sorry, what? Brian pulled the earbuds out of his ears. Couldn't do the deposit, Martin pointed to the bag. Bank lost power. Us too, I see. Wonder
1: how long it'll be out. Brian held up his phone. I was listening to the news, hoping to find out what was going on. WBZ was off the air for a while, but they're back on now. Yeah, truth is, so far nobody knows much. I'm wondering
0: if it was that construction crew... Doing the work up on State Street, suggested Martin. You know, workers cut something they shouldn't have. Yeah, I don't think so, said Brian, with a
1: little shake of his head. It's bigger than just State Street. News is spotty so far, but it sounds like all of Boston is out. He tapped his phone and studied the screen. Boston.com was listing neighborhoods affected, which is most of them, but they haven't updated for over ten minutes. CNN's got nothing. Fox News says there's power outages in New York and D.C tweets have been rolling in like crazy. Martin took out his phone and pulled up his feeds. Hmm, I'm getting them too.
0: City of Manchester. Serious traffic delays due to power outage. Avoid downtown. WMUR-TV. State budget meeting postponed. Power out in Concord. Professor Calhoun. Cultures 101 test postponed. Exeter Academy closed due to power outage. Oh, looks like parts of New Hampshire are out, too. We must be having another good old-fashioned New
1: England power grid failure, Martin sighed. Brian was still looking at his phone. I'm getting some retweets from our brother out in Chicago. Lincoln Park is out, Englewood, Shedd Aquarium, near Northside. This extends all the way out to Chicago, too. Oh, oh, here's something new from St. Louis. Check out the hashtag, hash outage. Martin tapped that in and scanned the feeds as they quickly scrolled down his screen.
0: Most were the inane reactions of the clueless with very little useful news. Jared Dunkel. St. Louis is trying to save on electricity bill? Lame. Chad Imbril. What's going on with the lights? I want my power back. Rebecca Sophia. Hey, no power. Seriously? I'm missing my TV shows. Someone will pay. One tweet caught Martin's eye as he scrolled. Southwest Airlines, due to outage, SWA offices and website temporarily offline. We hope to be back online soon. Hmm, Southwest is offline too, Martin said. Their headquarters are in Dallas. You Aren't you saying that Texas is a whole other power grid from us?
1: Well, yes it is, said Brian. So this is something bigger than just another one of our usual northeast blackout things. Well, you were talking about EMPs a couple of weeks ago. Do you think that's what it was? Martin asked. Brian shook his head. I thought that at first, too, but I don't think so now. I mean, a burst big enough to take down that much of the power grid should have totally fried delicate little stuff like our cell phones, but they're working fine. Ah, uh, but about a solar flare, then? I see some of
0: the tweeters out there think it's a solar storm. Brian shook his head and shrugged.
1: That would only fry stuff that was plugged in. My phone was plugged in. No scorching, signs of a surge. This is more like an ice storm that takes down the power lines, except without the ice. Martin pocketed his phone. Anything this
0: widespread doesn't sound like it'll be back on in an hour or two. What do you want to do about that Madison proposal? It's due Friday. Brian tilted back in his creaky office chair and ran his fingers through his hair. "Ah, I know, I know. We're actually in pretty good
1: shape on Madison. Without power or the server or router, it's not like we can get much done around here today. I already told Amy and Shree they could go home. Yeah, you should go
0: too. We'll see how things look tomorrow. Sounds good. I've got my sections of the proposal on my laptop. I can finish them up tonight. We can merge it all together tomorrow morning. I'll just go get my stuff and catch an earlier bus. At his desk, Martin picked up his desk phone to call home. No dial tone. He felt stupid for forgetting so quickly. (laughs) Force of habit. He comforted himself. He tried his cell phone, but all he could get was All Circuits Are Busy messages. He tapped out a quick text message to home. Monday, 9.30. Power out in Boston. Office closed. Going to get bus. The screen said, Message sent. But he wondered if Margaret would get it. At least with a voice call's messages, All Circuits Are Busy, it was a clear-cut failure. Text messages were more like notes in bottles. Who knew when, or if, they would ever wash ashore? He began shoving his laptop into his messenger bag, but stopped. Oh, wait. What if there are no buses? He remembered a previous long and fruitless wait for buses that never came. He plopped back into his chair and blew out a long breath through pursed lips. If there are no buses, I might have to resort to Plan B. Better take the other bag, just in case. He pulled a scruffy gray backpack from under the side table. A quick inventory confirmed what he already knew. His Plan B bag was not really ready. There were extra clothes and rain ponchos and basic first aid, tidbits and miscellaneous small camping items. A water bottle was there, but the energy bars had long ago fallen victim to snack attacks and never been replaced. If he caught a bus, the energy bars wouldn't be missed. But if he could not get a bus... Well, 50 miles was a long way to walk on an empty stomach. He shook his head to dismiss the thought. He told himself he wouldn't have to walk. That was simply a remote possibility, a plan B. He wanted to believe that the day's worst-case scenario would be a tediously long bus ride. He reassured himself he'd be home by dark. Martin slid the laptop between the clothes, in the backpack, and traded in his leather business shoes for a pair of worn sneakers. In the office fridge, he scrounged up a bagel, a leftover from their client meeting the Friday before. It was a bit dry, but there were no mold spots yet, so he stuffed it in the backpack, too. Could be a long bus ride. He avoided thinking about the alternative. Guess I'm on my way, Brian,
1: said Martin. See you tomorrow, hopefully. Eh, maybe, maybe not, Brian pointed to his phone, getting unconfirmed reports that London might be down, too.
0: Oh, whoa. The news impressed Martin, but he did not let it sink in very deep. He had a bus to catch. Well, one day at a time, let's touch base tomorrow and we'll see how things are. Get that Madison thing all buttoned up. I'll call you in the morning. Take it easy, Brian. Yeah, I will. Be careful out there. When Martin stepped back out into the bright of day, the city looked different. The sidewalks were full of people. Most of them stood motionless, looking at their phones. They reminded Martin of an old sci-fi movie where the army of invading robots all stopped in their tracks for lack of instructions because the hero had destroyed the mothership. Those not staring at their phones milled around in small groups, talking, like they did whenever a fire alarm emptied one of the office buildings. Except in this case, it appeared to be every building. Some chatted together, but most were tapping on or staring at their phones. A few looked like they were talking to someone. Oh, did they get a connection? Martin tried his phone again. The same all-circuits-busy message played. As he made his way through Liberty Square, he heard a familiar loud voice over the murmurings of the crowd. "'Spare change news! Only a dollar! Help the homeless help themselves!' On the steps, in his usual archway, stood a wrinkled old man with a Popeye face and a walrus mustache. "'Hey, Tony,' Martin called out and waved. "'Where you been?' Hey, partner, yeah, yeah, I had to take a few days off. Uh, my hip was killing me. Tony held out his plastic cup and an armful of newspapers. But I'm back in the saddle, uh, so to speak. Uh, paper, mister? Martin slid a five-dollar bill into the cup and took a paper. Tony nodded his thanks then waved his cup at the crowds. Heck of a crazy show going on today, eh? Look at all these people. Yeah, Martin said, suppressing an impish smile. "'What did you do, Tony? Pull some fire alarms to get more customers on your sidewalk?' Well, "'No, I never even—' Tony's eyes flared wide, but then squinted from a broad grin hidden beneath his mustache. Well, "'You got me that time. <laughs> no, but that's a good idea. Have to remember me that for later. Nah, these folks, ain't in a buying sort of mood. All a bunch of nervous Nellies. Guess power's out in all these here buildings.' "'Heard there's people trapped in the elevators up in that tall glasswood over there. "'This one over here had a generator going for a while, up on the roof, but something went kablooey.' "'He pointed to the roof across the square, where a ribbon of black smoke trailed up over the cornice. "'Tony pointed left. "'People from that brick one over there, they was talking about folks in wheelchairs, "'trapped up on ninth floor. No elevators, you see.' "'A bunch of them young lawyer types were over that other building. "'They just went in and carried them down the stairs. "'I might have to stop doing my weekly lawyer jokes. (laughs) "'Them guys is all right.' "'So, Tony,' Martin said, "'sounds like this crazy show just isn't going on around here but all over. "'You gonna be okay? I I mean, with the outage and all.' "'Outage, schmoutage, I just walks. Don't take no power for that.' "'Yeah, but what about that?' Martin almost said, "'Home.' where you stay?' Tony laughed. "'Ha, that old Impala ain't never had no electricity, "'but you got the best bench seats ever. "'Outage won't be changing much for me.' "Mm, "'I suppose not. Still, a guy's got to eat. "'If you were going to get some groceries or something,' "'Martin slipped Tony another five-spot, "'you should probably do it quick. "'You know how people get when there's a storm coming. "'Strip the shelves of bread and milk. "'Best to get there early.' beat the rush. Eh, maybe you're right about that. People ain't buying newspapers anyhow. Well, I gotta get the south station, Martin said. Gotta catch me a bus. Okay, partner. Well, you take care of myself, you hear? He winked. I will if you will, Tony, Martin winked back. The scenes of congestion and confusion were the same along Congress, High, and Federal streets. People stood around on the sidewalks as if they were attending a very large but boring block party, or like a crowd that had shown up hours early for a parade. But instead of peering up the street to catch their first glimpses of sports champions on duckboats, they looked up at their buildings or at their phones. Some wore their coats and jackets, others shivered and rubbed their arms, regretting having left their office without their coats. From fragments of conversation that Martin picked up as he passed— people were unsure what to do. Go home? Go back to work? Wait for services to be restored? How long would that be? Should they call someone to complain? Who do you call? How do you call? Some of them shared news tidbits and guesses for why the power was out. Amid the banal were some colorful theories. Terrorists had blown up Niagara power. One woman heard that a train full of chemical weapons blew up in New Jersey. Her friend heard that it was a train full of nuclear waste and it blew up in Connecticut. Each passed along their theory news as if it were a secretly revealed truth. Martin smiled and shook his head at the creativity that fills a news vacuum. He wondered why the power was out, too, but was more focused on getting home. The drivers on Atlantic Ave. were not playing as nicely as those at State Street in Congress. Cars inched along in close order. They allowed no gaps for side street traffic to enter the glacial flow. The shutout drivers honked their displeasure. As far as Martin could see up and down Atlantic Ave, the four lanes of stalled traffic did resemble an automotive glacier, slowly inching toward the sea. Pedestrians filtered between the cars, two or three abreast, like sand running through fingers. A sizable crowd had gathered at the Red Line T-Station entrance. People were filing in. Others were wandering out. It looked like business as usual, though Martin wondered why. The T ran electric trains. Why were those people going down the stairs? Did they think their train would be an exception? The bustle around South Station reminded Martin of the day before Thanksgiving, thousands of people hurrying to get someplace, except this time no one had holiday smiles. Then a sudden tinge of déjà vu gave him a chill. The wearied faces and urgent jostlings was more like what he saw back on 9-11. Back then, his carpool had left without him. Back in 2001, catching a bus to New Hampshire was his seldom-used backup plan to the carpool. The bus station was mobbed back on 9-11. No one was smiling then, either. Martin remembered waiting around in the crowded station for over five hours, but there were no buses going north. A few buses departed for points west or south. After that... No new buses came for anyone. Hundreds began setting up indoor camp on the concourse. They were stuck in the city. So was he. This day was different from 9-11 in one big way. This time, there was no power at the station. People marched up the frozen escalators. Without all of the ceiling lights, the main rotunda lobby resembled a man-made sinkhole. Soft daylight filtered down through the ring-of-glass block around the dome. The station hummed with a thousand conversations. Martin merged into the mass of people trudging up the central escalator. A woman pounded on a dark ATM kiosk. She tried profanities when fists didn't work. It was simply unacceptable that the ATM did not accept her card. Apparently, it was also unacceptable for the kiosk to be dark as well. Martin worked his way through the swirling eddies of people in the dark concourse toward his usual gate but there were no Hub Express buses waiting outside. Was this normal? He was familiar with the afternoon and evening schedule, but he had no idea when the morning buses ran. He made his way back to the Hub Express ticket counter to pick up a schedule and ask maybe when the next bus might be. The ticket bays and food vendor bays all resembled dark caves at the sinkhole walls. Most were totally dark. The occasional wavering flashlight beam from within one or two of the bays resembled guided cave tours in progress. In the Hub Express ticket bay, the rows of jostling people were silhouetted by the soft glow of a flashlight shining on the colored back wall. Would-be riders were pressed up against the counter, three and four deep, all asking questions at once. Most of what Martin could hear was the whining and angry demands of people wanting tickets. Martin already had his commuter tickets. What he needed was a schedule and some information. At one point, the agent's phone bleeped. Martin was surprised that the push-to-talk service still worked. From the snippets he could overhear, the news was not good. The 10 o'clock bus was stuck in the tunnel from the airport. When the lights went out, a chain reaction fender bender stopped everything. No one was hurt, but the bus was blocked in. The agent announced all this to the crowd, trying to assure them that the 12 o'clock bus would take an alternate route, though it might be a little late. The agent's announcement answered Martin's question, but not in a way he had hoped. If the stalled traffic he had already seen was any indication, that 12 o'clock bus would be stuck somewhere, but it would not be getting into or out of Boston. The ticket agent probably knew that. Whether he was following company policy to report only happy news, or from a sense of self-preservation, the agent was not going to tell all those impatient people that no buses were coming for them. Martin pushed out of the crowd that had formed behind him. He remembered seeing a Concord coach bus a few gates down. His Hub Express tickets were no good for Concord coach, but their buses drove up into New Hampshire, too. He overheard two women talking about their bus being the 10 o'clock Concord bus at gate 16. He felt a rush of optimism. It was 9.55. He did not know where the Concord bus stopped. Maybe Salem, Manchester, and then Concord? It didn't matter. All of those were closer to home than Boston. His challenge was getting on without a ticket. He thought he could maybe offer the driver some cash. He maneuvered through the cross flow of people as if fording a neck-deep river. He hoped there was enough time to reach the bus. A stop in Manchester seemed likely, and a good compromise. That was not where he parked his truck, but close enough. It would mean a four- or five-hour walk to get to it. That seemed a small price to pay. Even if he had to ride all the way up to Concord, he could call Margaret and have her come pick him up. Maybe the phones were not all jammed farther north. She would not like having to drive all the way to Concord, but she would do it. The windowless concourse was darker than the rotunda. The only light came from puny emergency floodlights at both ends, and from the headlights of a few buses shining through the glass wall. For a brief moment, the scene reminded Martin of old black-and-white war movies, "'Prisoners of war massed in the yard for a surprise night inspection "'with spotlights on the guard towers. Hmm, too many old war movies,' Martin muttered to himself. "'The concourse was packed like a stadium lobby "'just before the gates opened. "'The air was getting stale with the scent of breath "'and many perspiring bodies. "'Martin overheard more fragments of conversations "'as he squeezed and zigzagged "'through the jumble of shoulders, backs, and butts. "'Some were angry at the inconvenience,' Some were worried about family. Others shared news and questions. Was it all the work of terrorists? Someone heard that there was a leaking LNG ship in the harbor, so officials had cut all the power in the city to prevent sparks. That at least sounded logical, even if wrong. And Why would they cut the power in Chicago because of a leaking tanker in Boston? One middle-aged woman was just certain that it was all the work of Tea Party extremists intent to destroy America. Martin was not sure how that worked, but he did not have time to listen for more. The people near Gate 16 were silhouetted by headlights beaming through the plate glass wall. It was the Concord bus, lights on and loading. People had compressed themselves into a solid mass, struggling to get through the single door. Gate 14 had no bus and no crowds at its door. Martin slipped out and joined the side of the crowd on Platform 16. Everyone was talking loudly jostling and trying to climb through the bus door at the same time. Clearly the driver was inside taking tickets from his seat. Martin inserted himself into the mass of people that flowed towards the bus door. He had a $20 bill folded in his fist. Once aboard, he planned to hand it to the driver and step down the aisle. Maybe the driver would accept it, maybe not. But Martin figured that once he was aboard the bus... The inflowing stream of passengers would make it nearly impossible to send him back off. Being aboard was nine-tenths of a ticket, or something like that. The opportunity never came. The bus began backing up while Martin was still several people back. A man and a woman continued trying to jam themselves into the still-open door as the bus backed out. Neither got on. They scowled at each other. The remaining crowd at the gate stared in disbelief, "'bathed in red light from the taillights "'until the bus rounded the bend and out of sight. "'Many in the crowd loudly vowed to wait right there where they stood "'to be the first in line for the next bus. "'That assumes there'll be a next bus,' Martin thought. "'Martin felt an odd tingling on the back of his neck. "'Something about the sight of those people "'scrambling to get onto the bus as it backed away "'and those left behind reminded him of old news footage.' During the evacuation of Saigon, crowds on rooftops left behind, all reaching up for the last rising helicopter. Was this how it felt to watch the last helicopter leave Saigon? Martin dismissed the thought as an overactive sense of drama and probably too much history channel. Dah, things aren't that bad, he told himself. It's just a bus. He worked his way back through the station crowd slowly, not quite certain where he was going next. He could stay and join the hundreds in the station waiting for another bus. He had no confidence there would be another bus. Waiting did not work for him last time. When it was only a nervous city, it still had power. This time, there was a functional problem. Another option was to go back to the office and sleep under his desk again. He shook his head. That was still waiting, but with fewer people around. He was not giving up yet. There was still his plan B to walk home. His mind had been avoiding eye contact with that option. If the outage was as serious as it seemed, the city would probably open up shelters for all the stranded business travelers, tourists, and distant commuters like himself. Martin wondered who would he ask about the shelters. A cot would be more comfortable than the office floor carpet, but how long would he be there? Days? Weeks? The only mental images he had of shelters were those news photos of the Superdome after Katrina. He cringed at the prospect of becoming trapped in the quicksand of government benevolence. Then an idea flashed into his mind. Hey, North Station, maybe I could catch a train. Martin was surprised that he had not thought of the trains before. Truth was, they didn't go anywhere he ever needed to be, so he seldom thought of them. He knew the conductor's sold tickets on board. Martin would happily pay the higher price for a on-board, even if they tacked on some opportunistic crisis fee. Paying out a few extra bucks was the least of his worries. The train might only take him as far north as Haverhill or Lowell, but, he reasoned, that would leave him maybe a half a day's walk up to his truck. He might still be home before midnight. That was a far less intimidating option than a fifty-mile walk. This new alternative salvaged his hopes. His pace quickened once he had a destination. Recrossing through the snarl traffic on Atlantic Avenue was far more difficult than before. Traffic had tightened up such that the cross flow of pedestrians could only sift through in single file. Most of the pedestrians were still streaming toward the station. The air in the street was hot from all of the idling engines and acrid with exhaust fumes. The extra effort required to cross Atlantic gave Martin time to wonder if he was overreacting. Was he letting himself get spooked? What if the power came back in a few hours? He could find himself on a northbound train, halfway to no place he really wanted to be. Had his memories of 9-11 taken on an inflated drama over the years? Was sleeping in the office really all that bad? Back on the night of 9-11, sleeping beside his desk had been passable enough. Some sort of blanket would have made it easier to stay asleep. The offices got surprisingly cool after hours. The mayor had closed the city, more or less, so on the day after, nearly everyone had stayed home. Businesses were closed. Venturing too far from his ad hoc office campsite did not seem wise. He had nothing but the clothes on his back and three dollars in his pocket, so he roamed only a half a dozen blocks in any one direction. The few convenience stores in the financial district and the waterfront were all closed. The city was a virtual ghost town. An occasional siren would wail up a side street. Some important buildings, like banks or government offices, were guarded by jittery security personnel or policemen. They stood with hands on their holsters and eyed Martin, the lone pedestrian, with nervous suspicion. By the end of the second day, Martin had eaten what little there was in the office's kitchenette. For all the time that he spent walking the empty streets looking for food, he reasoned, he could just as well have been walking home, though he wasn't equipped for it. That experience had been the start of Martin keeping a backpack under his desk. If he ever got stranded again, he would at least have the option to walk home. Over the years, he added things to his bag to make his plan B more manageable. That went in cycles. Occasionally, He thought it was a silly waste of time and stopped adding anything more to the bag. After Hurricane Katrina, he resumed, adding a few more things, a disposable lighter here, some paracord there. Martin vowed to himself back then that he would rather walk the fifty miles home, even if it took three or four days, than stay stranded downtown again. Better to keep moving than sitting still, became his motto, even if he never said it out loud to anyone egging him on to continue adding to his bag was the nagging feeling that never quite came into focus, that being stranded in Boston the next time could be worse than a couple of chilly nights on the carpet and meals of old cream cheese on oyster crackers. Maybe what made him uneasy about staying in town were the horror stories from Katrina and Sandy or traveling restrictions that Boston experienced after the marathon bombing. Also, in the corners of his mind, was the frequency with which other cities erupted into bloody riots, as for the thinnest of reasons, an unpopular jury verdict, a racial incident, or a sports team not winning their championships, it took surprisingly little for cities, those cathedrals to kumbaya enlightenment, to turn savage.